Well, good day. My name is Jacob, and uh, I'll be reading from the book of Obadiah, which you can find in your leaflets there. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth In the day of their disaster, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be a stubble, and they, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the lands of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdoms will be the Lord's. Hello everyone, my name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Paraka. Really glad to be with you. Happy New Year, everyone. It's hot, isn't it? So let's not stay here for too long in the middle of the heat. If you've got this passage open in front of you, keep that there. We're going to, I'm going to, obviously there's no screen up the back here to flash verses on, so I'm going to keep referring to parts of that Bible. Um, It's pretty common for siblings not to get along. 
right? All the parents nodding, yes, yes, it is. Uh, you know, right back with Cain and Abel, through to today, siblings uh, constantly have rivals. Like, you've got um, Noel and Liam Gallagher from Oasis. They basically broke up their band because they couldn't get along. The princes, William and Harry, seemingly constantly at odds with each other, aren't they? Have you heard of Rudolph and Adolf Dassler? Anyone? No, of course not. Well, these, these are brothers. They're, they're brothers, German shoemakers they are. And apparently they're very good at it. They had a company of quite, it was going along quite well making shoes. But one day in the middle of World War II, one of them made a comment to the other that was taken badly. And from then on, there's a division in that family. They go their separate ways. But they're shoemakers. They're both good at it. One forms the company that's become Adidas. The other forms the company that's become Puma. There's a, a family division cause these two companies to rise up. Put your hand up if you have a sibling here. Most of us have a sibling. Now, keep your hand in the air if you've ever had some kind of rivalry with, rivalry with one of your siblings. And see, most of the hands are staying up, right? My hand is up there too. Me and my brother got a younger brother. In our teenage years, we just did not get along. Our personalities were too different, and I'm sure we caused our parents quite a lot of grief. But if you want to talk about sibling rivalries, what we just read in Obadiah really is the culmination of a sibling rivalry that's lasted 1,500 years. It all started with a guy named Isaac. If you want to, you can read about Isaac in the Bible in Genesis chapter 25. He has two sons, twin sons, one named Esau, one named Jacob. These sons, like me and my brother, are very different in personality. Esau was your typical kind of alpha male, outdoors type, loves going hunting, shooting, fishing. He's he's your BCF guy. Jacob, on the other hand, was a bit more of a homebody. He preferred the indoors. He's like your library member. Esau is physically, he's a bigger, stronger person than his brother, than, than, than Jacob. So as their sibling rivalry progresses, Jacob realizes he has to use his brain, his wit, his cunning to get any kind of upper hand against Esau. And that's what he does. On more than one occasion, Jacob deceives his brother Esau. And it got so bad, Esau was so annoyed that he wanted to kill his brother and just be done with it. So to protect his life, Jacob flees, country, flees to a different country and lives there for many years. Now, eventually, over time, they grow up, they mature a little bit, they mellow out, and they learn to live close by to each other. Probably not, you know, close neighbours, but, you know, maybe one of them was happy to live here in Paraka and the other one was happy to be down in Victor Harbour or something. So, uh, and out of these two nations then, uh, sorry, out of these two brothers, two nations come. From Esau comes this nation called Edom, which you would have heard about in the part of the Bible we just read. And from Jacob comes the nation of Israel. The two nations settle in different parts of the Middle East. If we had a screen here, I'd show you a map. But uh, basically, Esau lives along very much a a horizontal stretch. And just to the south and off to the side a bit was Edom. So Israel's up and down there and Edom over to the side here. Israel had decent farming land. They grew lots of food. It was pretty fertile land. Edom over here, though, they, they had safety. Uh, it was a secure place to be. It was very hard to attack. See, Edom lived in what they called the hill country. There were 
rocky, steep mountains, cliffs that were just had sheer cliff faces. And so things, this worked in Edom's favour. It made them safe. So other nations who, tried to, who wanted to attack them were just not able to do that very easily. And as these two brothers form into two nations, the rivalry between them continues. At one point, Israel, Israel has a civil war, and so it really splits into two nations. Up the top, you've got what they call what, what keeps the name Israel, and down the bottom is they keep the, they, get, they get the name of Judah. And so Judah is the close neighbour to Edom. Uh, and occasionally, very occasionally, Edom and Judah will, will have an alliance together against other nations. But most of the time, they keep their rivalry going. For example, at one point, Edom joins a bunch of other nations to come and attack Judah. And at other times, the nation of, of Judah will come and, and, and rule over Edom because they're more powerful militarily. These two nations have a rivalry between them. But they're not the big powerful nations of the time. And after a while, a bigger nation, a much more powerful nation comes, Babylon. And they attack Judah, and they defeat Judah, and they take the Jews into exile with them. And here's the question for the day. What did Edom do? What did Edom do when Judah was being attacked? How did they respond to their brother nation in, the, in a time of need? That's what the book of Obadiah really is all about. It's, it's the culmination of this sibling rivalry that's lasted 100, uh, 1,500 years. So I want to do two things now. Let's just get our way through what the book of Obadiah says. And then I want to talk about what does it mean for us today. That's what we're heading. Sketch our way through what the book of Obadiah says. And what does it mean for us today? Two things. Here we go. Firstly, what does Obadiah say? As you, read, as you read it and as Jake read it out for us, it doesn't take long before we realize Obadiah is speaking a message of judgment. Judgment against this country, Edom. Uh, Obadiah says that God is going to judge Edom. Just look at how it starts in verse 2. God says about Edom in verse 2. He says, See, I'll make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, a bit before Christmas actually, I was out for a jog in the morning. As I was jogging along, I saw a koala in a tree that was kind of no not much higher up than my head was in this tree. And so when you're jogging, of course, you look for any opportunity to stop, don't you? And so I stopped and I thought I'd watch this koala for a little bit. And as I'm standing there watching this koala, these birds come swooping down at the koala. And I was thinking to myself as I'm watching this, why do these birds think they can get away with this? I mean, the koala is much bigger than these birds, and if the koala just tried to swipe at them, and if he timed his swipe really well, then surely these birds are going to get decimated, right? But perhaps, you know, why do the birds do this? Well, maybe they're protecting some babies somewhere, although it's not the right time for birds to have babies right now. And, but most certainly they've done this before to koalas, and they realize they can get away with it. The koala doesn't wipe them out, so they feel safe. It's a sense of pride that's crept in, that we can do this and we'll be all right. Maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe not. Maybe they're just animals acting on instinct. But that sense of pride, that's the kind of thing that's crept in for Eden. They've got this great place to live, secure. There's natural defences all around them. No invading army can attack, so they're safe. They can do what they want, right? But God says to them, no, you're going to be defeated. Look at verse 3, what God says to Eden. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And really, for the first nine verses of Obadiah, it keeps saying that Edom will be judged. God is going to judge them. Which surely makes you ask the question, why? What is it that Edom has done to deserve this? Why is God against them in judgment? Look at verse 10 in your outlines there. In verse 10 we see, God is against Edom because of the way they treated Judah. In verse 10, uh, here the Jews are called by the name of their ancestor Jacob. And God says about Edom in verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Now remember, the big thing that's just happened to Judah is that this great nation of Babylon has come down and attacked them and defeated them, took them into exile. What did Edom do when all of this was happening? Well, verse 11, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, they were passive. They sat idly by while Babylon invaded Judah. But verse 12 says, it wasn't just that they were passive, Edom also took joy in Judah's defeat in verse 12. Or verse 13 says they didn't just take joy, but Edom also took plunder. They made themselves rich out of Judah's destruction. But the real low point comes in verse 14, where we find out that Edom even assisted Babylon in destroying the Jews. Check out verse 14. I'm going to read this one out. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. As Babylon ransacked Jerusalem, the city where the Jews live, and as the Jews ran for their lives, there was Edom waiting, but not waiting to lend a hand to their brother nation. They were waiting to cut them down with the sword and hand them back over to the Babylonians as slaves. It was a horrid act of betrayal. And God says to Edom, you will not get away with this. That's the message, really, of Obadiah. God is against Edom. God is bringing judgment on Edom for what they've done. To modern ears, we hear this kind of stuff. And we just don't like talking about God and and judgment. And we tend to think it's overly harsh. It kind of feels ungodlike to destroy another nation. Isn't he supposed to be this loving God? And, you know, you're right. The judgment of God is serious. It is severe. But the judgment of God is also just. The judgment of God is also right. See, God is not the kind of God who just kind of gets 
his anger is aroused and he flies out of control in a fit of rage, his judgment is, is, is careful and appropriate and right. Look at what the second part of verse 15 says. God, God speaks, he says, As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. There's a measuredness to God's judgment, an appropriateness. And this is certainly true for Edom. In verse 12, Edom gloated over Judah's downfall. So in verse 2, Edom are going to be humbled. In verse 13, Edom raided Judah. So in verse 5 and 6, they themselves are going to be raided. In verse 14, Edom ensured that Judah would have no survivors. So in verse 18, Edom will have no survivors. You see, there's an appropriateness, a rightness to the God's judgment here. What Edom has done to others, it will be done to them. You know, from our point of view, we're living in a country that hasn't seen the ravages of war for a very long time. Uh, for most of us, we, we, we've lived lives without being treated cruelly, without being treated as if our lives didn't matter. We haven't experienced that kind of thing. So from our point of view, this judgment, it can seem harsh. But put yourself in the shoes of the Jews. You're living in Jerusalem, under siege from a mighty foreign army, Finally, they crack through your defences and they're in the city and unspeakable things are starting to happen. And so you run. With a bunch of your neighbours, you find a way out and somehow you get out of the city and you just keep going. You run. Four or five days, you're on the run with this bunch of people. And just when you think that you all might have made it to a safe place, that somehow you escape this invading military force, just when you reach the protections of the mountains nearby where they can't come after you with their horses and carts, just when you think you're safe, that's when you get ambushed. You see neighbours that you've fled with, neighbours you've known for many years just cruelly murdered with swords. The rest of you just stop, you throw your hands up, you beg for mercy, but you're not given mercy. You're just taken back from where you've come. You're handed over to this military force and you see one of your neighbours trying to convince their kids, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. But everyone knows it's not. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Can you see why God bringing judgment is a good thing? Again, God is not this God who just flies out of control in a fit of anger. He's a God who judges with justice and fairness, and that is a good thing. Obadiah says to Edom, their day of judgment is coming because God will not let his people be mistreated. God will not let his people be mistreated. But actually, Obadiah is more than just a message to Edom. It's actually a message for all nations. It's, it's a message reminding everyone everywhere through all of time that the day of God's judgment will come for us all. Edom is like the prime example 
But the message is a message of judgment for all. Look at verse 15. It says, The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you've done, it will be done to you. The day of judgment is near for all people. And before we stop and we think, well, this book is just a book all about judgment and there's no hope there, it actually ends on a note of great hope. If you look at verse 19 and 20, you'll see a lot of strange place names. Negev, Gilead, Zerophilada, how do you say that one? Uh, it can be kind of hard to understand what it's all about. Who knows where these places are? And why is it important, for example, in verse 19, that the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines? What's going on here? Here's the basic idea of what it's going to say. It's hope for Judah. Now, Judah's in exile. But God is telling them, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forsaken you. You're still my people. I'll bring you back. I'll put you in your land again. In fact, I'm going to make it so that you have even more land than before. That's the idea of the place names. And it's not just hope for the Israelites and the Jews here. There's hope for the other nations too, because as they hear this, this, this says to the other nations, do you want a way out of God's judgment? Do you want to experience God's blessing? then don't stand against my people. Don't stand against them, but join them instead. Be part of them. Belong to the people of God. That's a very quick sketch of Obadiah. The second thing we want to do is to ask, what does this mean? What does it mean for them back then? And what does it mean for us today then? It's just two things I want to say here. Firstly, as we just said, God will bring justice for his mistreated people. Remember, Obadiah is writing to the Jews here. Obadiah is actually not writing to the Edomites, even though Edom is what this is mostly about. Obadiah is writing to the Jews. And God is using Obadiah to tell his people, yes, you have been mistreated, but do not think I'm unaware of this. I will bring justice on your oppressors. Edom will face my judgment seat. So can you imagine for a moment the relief that this brings for the Jews? Their tears have not gone unheard. The cruelty that they've endured will not be swept under the carpet as if it never happened. God will bring justice. God will bring justice for his mistreated people. And we have that same God as our God today. His character has not changed. Just as he promised justice for his mistreated people back then, so he will deliver it for his people who are mistreated today still. Now, most of us here today, I suspect, haven't suffered the kind of cruelty that Judah did back then. But many Christians across the world have and do. Think of the Christians in Iraq and Syria and what they endured when ISIS swept through a few years ago. Think of the Christians in China whose government routinely tries to destroy their faith. And the list goes on and on. Friends, can I suggest we need to pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray for our brothers and sisters in these countries that they do not give up. 
and pray that God would bring justice for them as he's promised. Will you do that? Secondly then, what does this mean for us today? Secondly, Obadiah screams out to us that it is good to belong to the people of God. It is good to be one of God's people. All those blessings in the last few verses that Obadiah speaks about, Judah never really experienced the fullness of them. In part, yes, but not fully. Some exiles returned to the land, but certainly not all of them. They did get back in their land, yes, but they didn't really increase the amount of land they had. And they did get back in their land, but they didn't actually rule. They, they, they were always ruled over by a foreign nation from that point on. This time of great blessing actually didn't come for ancient Israel. I think, why? Is it because God couldn't come through on his promises here? That's not it, actually. But God is actually using the language of land and, and, and kingdoms to speak about something that's even bigger and better. God is using this to speak about a time when he's gathering not just exiles for the nations, but, but people from all nations to come to him. And he's bringing them to a kingdom that's not just a little patch of land in the Middle East, but something that's far greater, a new heaven and a new earth, where the problems and troubles of this world disappear where God himself will be with us face to face. Friends, this is, this is what Jesus brings to us. Jesus is really the culmination of what Obadiah is pointing to. Jesus who brings us a kingdom that's not of this world, but one that's far greater than anything he could ever offer. It is good to be part of God's people and inherit these promises even today. The new year is here, and how are you feeling then about 2022? You might have a lot of reasons to feel hopeless about the year ahead. Troubles in your home life, concerns over money, uncertainty about job security, worries about the kids, or worries about COVID, you know. Weren't we supposed to be through with this about last year? And said, here we are, start of another year, and there's more cases than ever in our country. Who knows what 2022 has in store? And perhaps you're feeling hopeless about the new year. If that's you, I want to say, hear this message of hope from Obadiah. That it is good to belong to God's people. The promises he gives us are true and certain. So I want to say to us all, hang on to them this year. Let God's promises, his promises of a new heaven and new earth, his promises of, 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 of life with him, of life free from the worries of this world, let God's promises speak to you and shape your perspective on life and hang on to them, even in the midst of, of the things that are worrying about life. I'm sure though there are some of us here who are feeling really positive about the year ahead. Well, we've got... We're keen and eager to get into it, got plans, things to do and achieve, got goals that are going to drive us, we've got things to look forward to, personal milestones or family celebrations or fun experiences. We're looking forward to the year because it holds so much promise for us 
Is that you? If that's you, I just wanted to remind you again, 2022 is not about these things. Those aren't the things that are truly exciting about the new year. What we, what, what's truly exciting, what we've got to be eager to be involved in, is actually just being part of God's people. It can sound so simple, but this should really be the thing that drives us into the new year. We can put so much value in what we get out of 2022, but at the end of the day, simply belonging to God's people is better by far. These promises that God makes, these promises that God will deliver on, are better than anything that could come about through this year. So let me encourage you. Let 2022 be shaped by that, be shaped by God's promises to you. Now, we're all getting hot and bothered in here, aren't we? Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a song and stand up and stretch and get our arms floated about. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the book of Obadiah, and we thank you that you are the one who brings justice when there is mistreated people in this world. Thank you that you promised that and you can deliver. But thank you that you promise us and give us a great hope to hold on to, of belonging to your people, of being inheritors of your great promises to us. And we pray that this year and the years ahead that we would be shaped by those promises in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.